Hello, and welcome to the Mirror Stage Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe. Hello, and welcome in. My name is Ty, and my pronouns are he, him. And we at Mirror Stage are a multidisciplinary arts organization working in the Pacific Northwest. Here at Mirror Stage, we use the power of storytelling to challenge assumptions, bias and prejudice, increasing equity and inclusion, and encouraging a more thoughtful reflection on today's issues. And today, listeners, you're in for a special treat, as always. We'll be taking on Omari's book, Transforming Society's Failure from Felonies to College Degrees. So, without further ado, let's hop into our discussion. How did the reading go for everybody so far in our book club? It shook me more than I thought it would shake me, especially uh, just his childhood, like in all his interactions with his parents. I'm just comparing it to how great my upbringing with even with my mom by herself was Mm -hmm. compared to his relationship with his birth father and his stepfather and his mother all not being ideal. Um, It was just heart heartbreaking a bit um, to read a lot of what he had to experience in his childhood. And and seeing how being raised in that way created the way he thought you know, in the way he saw people as marks and, and how to get over and what you do and, and that he didn't even see it as a wrong because the way he was brought up, that wasn't seen in that way. It was just survival and um, how our childhood uh, really carves out sculpts who will you become later on. But um he was able to take that because he was already really smart. I mean, that's that's the thing I loved about it. The fact that he was naturally smart and knew how to put these pieces together for himself. Um, I was really astounded at the, the ability he had to come up with a pitch, you know, on, on you know, and and have people just give him money. Yes, we're creating this, you know. So in 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 one of the in the beginning of the book, one of his first hustles was all about creating um, an event for young people to have a basketball workshop. And he wrote it out and he laminated it and he went up to people. And when you have a young, well-spoken child come up to you and say, We're doing this, blah, blah, blah. Your pocketbook's going to open up. I mean, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I remember at that point in the 90s, 80s, 90s, there were a lot of kids doing that on the street. I mean, when I was living here, so I was like, and most of the time I kind of went, I think this is a grift and didn't give anybody any money. (laughs) But but, uh, some people did. And brilliant. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here for that. It is a good grip. <laughs> yeah, well, um, really because it's so more official. I'm like, oh, I have this document, that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I found like after reading maybe like the first one or two chapters, I just felt like I was I felt like it was too personal. Like obviously this is his autobiography, so it's like him telling the story. 
But I don't know if like either of you had that feeling. As I was reading, I was just like, oh, I don't, I shouldn't know this. But then I was like, no, of course you should know this. Like he's inviting you to know this. He wrote this out to, to like tell people. So that really stuck with me at the, as soon as I like got over that hump of just, oh, this is too personal and this is sad. But then realizing, no, you've met this person. You know their life is not like this. You've interviewed them on your podcast. You have them speak at an event that you were part of. It It's a happy ending. And like, it's not an ending so far because like we're only at the beginning chapters as well as he yeah. is still out here doing all these great things. Um, That really helps put things in perspective. But Angie, I wanted to also point out to you, and I know it's a little trickier because like Ty is still kind of new in to like the Seattle region. But hearing him just name drop these different things, these different locations. Can we also talk about real quick the ride free zones? In one of his chapters, he talked about the the free ride zones in Seattle. Those were a really big thing. And like they were really big things for a very long time that were even going on still when I was in my undergrad because that ride free zone saved me. And the concept was like there was a chunk of Seattle downtown area that it was free. It was free to ride the bus. You get on. If you go past the zone, you have to pay when you get off um, and vice versa. So like if you started off in the other end, you would have to pay, get on, you ride for free um, for an extended period of time. But I remember when I was in college, I lived in Pioneer Square and I went to school in the Denny Triangle area for our Seattleites. And that saved me. I wouldn't have been able to pay for the bus all like every single day, Monday through Friday, being a poor college kid. Um, and so I, it was just another thing that I was just like, oh, well. Also, when he was talking about um, the basketball team, when he was just name dropping oh, yeah. stuff, all those famous people. What? That was insane. Mm-hmm. His ability to be able to talk to the players and talk and talk his way into free tickets. And be family with the, the <laughs> team, the the best Sonics team, you know, like that's when people think of the Sonics, they think of like Sean and Kim and uh and those guys that he was talking about. I'm not a sports guy, so Sean Kim is the only person who stuck with me. Uh but yeah, that was that was amazing just to see like through all his adversity there was this one moment where this kid that loves basketball was able to live what probably like very very few other kids who are not related to nba players got to experience and when the one uh saw them on the road uh when they were walking home at, at late and shouldn't have had their ass outside he was like what y'all doing outside take your butt home and I'm like that shows that they that he had like like people looking looking out for him uh, along steps of his journey for sure. That was really impactful. That section where he created these relationships with the uh, basketball players and the, and the athletes because he didn't have that kind of relationship with um, older black men in his life, and these men actually cared that. Why aren't you in school right now? I want to see you coming to practice if you're not in school. I mean, the fact that they did that was so important to be a part of the 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 counteraction counteracting the negative side of the of of what was going on in his home life or those deficits in terms of having um, elders who were older people who were caring about him. Mm-hmm. 
and to have Most these definitely. black male male role models. I, I love the one of him going to the Palomino with Charles Barkley. I mean, that oh, yeah. was like. <sighs> He just saw you because they were chasing after the bus. And he was like, y'all chase this bus all the way down the street. I, I got to take y'all to get some food, you know. That was that was sweet. Especially because that wasn't one of the Sonics players, you know. That was like he him connecting with the away teams. And it's just just his no. spirit. And I love what you just mentioned about the um, having a Black role model. It, um, he mentioned that in his commentary, which is like, I have never read a book with commentary after each chapter. And I think it is like it has made reading this book like a hundred, not just easier to like understand how I feel about the chapter, but to like get insight as to what he was going through and like him now looking back on it saying like, oh, like, you know, y'all saw like I would I was not raised to be this grimy, but that is a situation where I was being grimy, you know, so yeah. it's it's really yeah. uh, incredible, uh, incredible reading experience, this revised right. version of this book. And, and him starting out talking about the history of his family where they had purchased, you know, land and a house, his grandparents or his great grandparents, and then going into the situation of how once one gets into an addictive um, spiral, how that kind of takes all that away can you know have all that um support disappear uh when you're in an addictive spiral that the family was in i i do think that what you just said ty about the commentary section to have a have someone create and write a memoir and then go back and do another uh edition after they have gone through a new phase of life and obviously had taken psychology classes and things because he had was classifying himself in these different layers of his uh, knowledge <laughs> um, uh, in that one, I guess it was commentary after chapter one or chapter two um, is very insightful. I found it. It's very kind of exciting. I think every memoir writer should do this. They should go back and do another one <laughs> after they've learned and lived and come back and look at, look at it with a new perspective of what was happening and how they've changed from that particular event. Well, and he starts to introduce this concept because then he's like, for our listeners, he talks about, yeah, kind of like before him time. So like the, the family dynamic of his grandparents and to his parents, and then he's brought into it. And then the hopping around from parent to parent, and then like the impact that, that their addictions had, but also like, the the cycles the cycles of addiction of just yes like um my mom's going into uh she's going into a halfway house so this means i have to move but she's gonna get help and then coming out of that and being like oh now she's addicted to drugs again so there's she's, um, excuse me she's actively using again so now we have to now we can't stay with her or how that affects us um but then from there kind of like hitting that high point of all the fun he had as a kid with kind of the carefree stuff of like the fun kid hustle. Cause like children are hustlers, but like that's cause they ain't got no money. <laughs> they have to figure out what they can do or get into for free. And if there are these people who are these positive role models that are offering this option for him, like how he's part of that. But then it, it turned into that more learning about how the school system and how the education system failed him. 
And so like reading some of these examples and like stories he's talking about, about how he kind of got lost in the shuffle of the education system, um, like made me reflect on my education as a child, just because it was very, like it's different, it's different than it is now. But some of the language he was having around specifically alternative schools, like I work with a young man right now who is a, attending an alternative school for the first time. Um, and it's a, a high school. And he had to get taken out of the his middle school that he was that was like not an alternative school to go into a high school that was an alternative school. And he's making like such great progress, such success, because it's not a place to throw unwanted and forgotten things, which is how this education system like used to be specifically. But it's a place where this young man is getting respect from teachers. He's getting met where he needs um, help and assistance on a smaller scale because otherwise he would get lost in the shuffle of everything. And then there's these like weird dynamics between adults and students in these realms of just who needs respect, who is believed, all these kinds of different ideas in the education system, which you're supposed to think like, it's to teach them these ways to teach them how to do this as opposed to no, it's to beat them down into the conformity of what we expect. You listen to the adults. You don't question. Why should they have to show you respect? All these kinds of different things. They're just like wrapping it back up and tying it back into what makes it harder to just be a young black kid. And like, where, where do you go from there? <laughs> And just the mention of the different schools, like, like Marshall, that um, alternative high school, I remember going there, um, I think for a couple of times to do some kind of artist in the school program there. And um, it was that the feeling there was not good. It was like this incarceration place, you know, it was not. Uh, so when he mentioned that, I was like, yeah, well, it didn't feel good when I was in there. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure it didn't feel good as a student. Um, so, yeah, that was quite interesting for me to have been in Seattle. Going uh, as an adult working, doing artists in the schools and kind of crossing over some of the places that he had been in and at his age he shouldn't have been at Marshall in the in the in the in the memoir when he's talking about that they were definitely older um more hardened young people there than his age range at that point um he should never have been in that population so uh that was interesting the other thing I found very interesting is the idea of how when he talked about when he talks about uh, his parents getting sober coming out and then they had that year or so of stability and how much that impacted him that he was a ba you know, it shows that when you have that family stability and everybody's getting fed and you're having family dinner and there's a, 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 a stable environment, how that affected his ability to be in class and go every day and not be truant. And even though he wasn't always succeeding academically, there was just this level at which he could exist successfully within that environment, which I found very illustrative. You know, it was very interesting. Yeah, I agree. Especially like what you were saying about the alternative school 
uh, me thinking back to when I was growing up, even in Georgia, like we we called it Crossroads. That's literally like the name of the alternative school. And there was just one for the whole county. And everybody knew like, if you, it was like a thing, like, don't be bad. You're going to get sent to Crossroads when yeah. there's like a whole other sect and class of people who could benefit from an alternative education. And it's not just about like <laughs> getting them separated for their disciplinary actions, but it should be like about focusing on what they need to be able to be successful. And a lot of the stories that Omari talked about just show like a, a major lack of of care on the Seattle public schools part. Like how was he able to go to another school get on the bus to go to a field trip and then they leave <coughs> both of them at the fair in Puyallup that's like an hour away that's insane he was in fifth grade you know and I think the field trip was for middle schoolers but either way like nobody today would you'd never hear of a bus leaving without doing a roll call or head count or something so it's just like shocking to me how the the lack of care um on that these adults had for these children shocking but yeah. not shocking because we're dealing with with black youth in the 90s so it it's not surprising but it is just shocking to read all right here we are for stage 2 of transforming society's failure the whole ordeal with him going to Kansas and college like the coaches calling him and <laughs> or and saying that, like context. Okay, yeah, so the coaches, Mo, his friend, was gonna go for a full-ride scholarship, but Mo was like, I gotta bring my boy with me, so, who is Omari, so the coaches were like, yeah, we'll pay for his full tuition, he'll be, whatever you get, he'll get, and then... He gets there, and he struggles with financial aid. They lied to him, and he not, he's not even able to stay there for very long. Like, And then he's still going home and hitting licks during all this time. And I'm like, oh, it's so heartbreaking because it's there. Like, he, want, he wants to, but it's like he can't, no matter what he does, it's like out of his hands that he can't even, you know, be great. And it's sad. It is sad. Well, and it's sad, but it's also interesting. So like you're saying, they they get them all out there. And so then what's so upsetting to me was when he got there and they were like, oh, weird. We don't know. They still put him up. The the college put him up in the dorms. He got to register for classes. He got to start going to classes. The part that fell through was like we're talking about the financial aid aspect, but also the fact that they kind of were like, sure, we can hold a spot for you while you figure it out. And then it took too long to figure it out. Like the financial aspect, um, because there weren't any answers quick enough for the school. They were like, nah, you got to go. And like, you're saying like this idea that he just had to then up and go home. And so that that's also one of the things I want to talk about because he, they drove there, right? They drove there. And so then then he had to drive back by himself. Home by himself. He gets in like, it's it's like snowy time. It's like deep in winter. So he like gets in an accident. But like, luckily, there's a tow truck that's there to help him. It was just all, all bad. Yeah. All just like. He like spent his last, like didn't have enough money to pay the tow truck driver and gave him 
like everything he had just to get his toe his car towed out of there like that it was heartbreaking man yeah and it's just so interesting because having seen Amari speak and give his lecture and having like spoken to him about his his education journey and his college journey like there's so much more positive college experiences that we have like coming up that when I read that I was like I don't remember him ever talking about this. And I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense. It's just kind of like a blip in a thing that's like, oh, that didn't quite work out. But it motivated him. Like he says it in the commentary about it. It kind of showed him what was possible, which is good. Mm Because I feel like a lot of times what happens is like, sometimes when you have like a scarcity mindset, is it, it comes out like, oh, that was taken away. So I can never deserve anything nice again. Or I can never have an opportunity like that again, some kind of more of that negative space. But even with that, he really took it as an opportunity to kind of figure it out. And it, he didn't give up on school. Um, we're going to be learning more and more about his journey and his process. But even that one very big blip in the road that could discourage anyone didn't discourage him. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, have you, have you gotten to the part where he gets... He gets shot. Oh my god! <laughs> Wait, what's that? Where he shoots himself? Let's yes. Shoot yes. himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which was so scary, so scary and upsetting. Um, yeah, but just our listeners. Long story short, for the first time, he shot. He accidentally shoots himself because he has a trash gun that was bought off the streets because things are getting unsafe. Like we're yeah. just in a point of time where where he's making financial choices that are not the the safest and like surrounding himself with people that are not the safest i think his apartment gets broken into his apartment mm. gets broken into so then his response is i need to get a gun so he gets a gun but it's black market um kind of shoddy he talks about like how the trigger was really fast like, it was really yeah yeah so he goes to shoot the gun off gets scared puts it back in the car then picks it up to shoot it, and then the trigger goes off, and he shoots himself in the knee, which was so upsetting and, like, scary to hear. Oh, my gosh. I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, but he was going to shoot it out the window, which is, like, maybe if, <laughs> it prevented uh, something worse from happening. Yeah, that's very true. But the other time he got shot. Yes. Yes, so that's at least the second time here. Oh, yeah, the second time we're at so far, hopefully. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't even think about that. Um, But, yeah, he, what are they doing? They're, like, out on the town. And then there's, like, a fight that breaks up at a club. And then they get in the car and they start driving down the freeway. And somebody, like, tears his car up. Yeah, like, pulls up next to him. and, And I love the way he wrote this part because... He said, like, I was with my homegirl, and there was a fight, but at the time, I didn't think anything of it. And he loves to, to like, throw those in there, where it's like, right now, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about this. And it just goes to show, like, there's a, a chain of events that we only see the front of, like, at all times, you know? And... And he still doesn't know if that person was connected to that fight. Like, he didn't say that to say, like, oh, and then later on, like, those same people she was fighting with came back to get me. It's just, like, he doesn't know. That very well could be the case. 
Um, but part of it was also that he was flashy. He was very recognizable. He had all these cars. And then if there was someone who saw, you know, someone they had beef with get into his car, that just makes him a target. And uh, it was a very unfortunate situation that he was attacked. But um, I love that, you know, he came out of it with like a motivation to be better and to not, you know, want to be, you know, that helped him push himself out of that life. Yeah. And so as, as we get further into this um, section of section two, that's when I, I was like, he's going to go to jail. And so every time, because at, at different points in the story, he talks about hitting the lick. He talks about the different scams that are being run, how he's involved, how other people are involved. So he keeps describing different moments. And so as a reader, I would be like, oh, is this the moment that he's going to get arrested? Oh, is this the moment that this is going to happen? Oh, is this the moment? But it it doesn't doesn't happen like that like that's the so the weird thing about how mundane life is is it's like there wasn't an instant that was now there's a shootout and you had to run or you had to turn yourself in it it's not as hype and dramatic as that it's just oh the paper trail caught up with you the paper mm -hmm. trail caught up with you and it, caught, it catches up with his um girlfriend first and then he decides to turn himself in and so that was what was so hard to read is like the point of view of somebody who was like, OK, I got to do the right thing. I got to turn myself in. I, I have to be there for my children because he has children at this point. Um, so I'm going to do the right thing. And the fact that like he went in to do the right thing and the system, the legal system was like, don't care. Don't care. He's a threat. He's going to run. He's a flight risk. Um, put his bail at a hundred thousand dollars and make sure he has an order against seeing his girlfriend, who's the mother of his children. Yeah. What? That's insane. That's insane. I couldn't believe it. I honestly I was with him where I was I was like, oh, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And then I was like, oh, well, he just turns himself in. Well, this will be better. And it was like, but was it? And I like that he he adds that in the commentary. That's one of the things he talks about because he's like. I don't know what I would do now because I know how it turned out. And it's mm -hmm. like turned out the exact same as if I would have been on the run. So, oh, that's upsetting. Yeah, it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting that, you know, he really he really tried to do the right thing. And he showed that the justice system was it's working as it is as it is intended to work and keep disenfranchised people disenfranchised and separate black families and families of color like he sh gave us hard concrete examples of that that um and you know it's hard to read but it's not surprising and honestly i'm so glad that i have the insight because i didn't really know like what happened with like with sentencing and what happens really like on the criminal like offender like side of things you know i just thought like okay they go to court get their sentence and go to jail i didn't know it takes like all this time and you're at all these different facilities and it's it's yeah it's unfortunate that so many people have to be uh victim to that even though you know they don't really deserve it some of them don't deserve it nobody really deserves it for how it's built but you know 
The Bolasol prison. I'm here for this guy. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Honestly, like they they suck. You know, they're not re- rehab, and they don't do anything to to make people leave different or better than they were when they went in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. And it's all a mindset of like all the different people who enter that space, all the survival instincts that you have to have in that space because of the dehumanization that is amongst the inmates, as well as more specifically the dehumanization that is put on them because they are given just numbers and codes because they of the guards and the systems that are in place to be like, you're not, you have no rights here. You have no rights here. And then when yeah. you leave here, guess what? You have no rights. Yeah. Never forget. You have no rights here. <laughs> I'm the person in power. And it's like you continue that cycle for enough times. And you don't have somebody who is as strong and able to see the other side of this. If you don't have someone who's able to do that. Then they are trapped within a system. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I keep it like. It's going to have a happy ending, though. <laughs> like, it is, yeah. Like, we know how it ends. We've met yeah. Omari. He's exactly. on the podcast, the last episode. <laughs> yes. But like, we've worked with him. We're going to invite him to come do more things. We know Omari. But, yeah. I'm just like, oh. but I'm waiting for, like, I was definitely waiting for the, so when they were in the car, him and Mo, I was like, oh, this is, he's talking up his basketball career too much. He's like, something's about to happen. And then they did crash. But it wasn't bad. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Let me down easy. <laughs> exactly. It's more the like little life inconveniences that yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, calm down, Kiki. Just calm down. Not everything <laughs> is an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Facts. Um, and I'll just another fun thing for everybody is that um in between the sections, it also has just cute pictures. So, like, in the first section, it was him as a little baby, as a wee one with his, like, family. And then in the second um, stage, there are some pictures of him, like, um, of clearly, like, locked up. But then there are just other pictures of him being young. Just, yeah. like, living that living that early aughts dream. Young I need Seattleite. You- yes. Sorry, and real quick, I need you to know, we got to a section where he talks he talks a lot about cars. He loves himself some cars. He talks a lot about women. I'm just going to get on my high horse right now and invite you, Ty. Every time he says the word female, I'm like, oh, you you're cringe. I cringe deep in my soul. And I say it like female. I was telling my sister this earlier. I always read it as like in my head as like Omari would be like presenting it in his beautiful voice. And then I get to female and I'm like, oh, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. But like, it's a clear delineation. Which is just something that, like, we as a society are more aware of now as we discuss and, like, look at alpha male podcasts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to, like, hear him reflect and kind of see where his own sexism is coming up, which he does kind of acknowledge at different points. Um, but on, like, a funner note of this, I was like, what's Thizzle Dance? Because I was like, it's a Mac Joy song. And then I was like, what is it? And I turned to my sister and I was like, is this a specific Because I was like, is there a specific thing? Like, you know, like the Superman or the lean back or something. And so then I immediately went and found the music video. Do you know what the fizzle dance is? Have you seen this? No, I have not seen it. Uh, 
that'll be in our call to actions for everybody because I will post that video. But it's very silly, and I'll send it to you now when we're when, when we're done here. But it's just kind of another one of those. It's just called the Thistle Dance, and it's just another one of those like we just rock, we just rock, and then he'll tell you like to do different things. They like pop their collars, <laughs> they like rub their face. It's like such silly, silly things. But I'm just like, oh, that's good times. Like that is one of the least problematic things. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> 2000s journey of like hitting licks and yeah. making unsafe choices but i was just like oh look at just just wanting to drive in cars and dance <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i was definitely looking up all the cars that he was looking yeah he was mentioning but i forgot to look up the fizzle dance it was like in my head well, i'm definitely gonna check it out catch us hitting the fizzle dance at our stories of spring event <laughs> If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. Yeah, also share any thoughts you have that you want to verbalize on Section 2, because we... We said a lot, but we can riff um, Well, I just thought that, that the, the one thing that really jumped out at me from section two were those two events where he uh, accidentally shot himself and then was in a drive-by in the same jeans getting hit on the knee again. And that as a young person of uh, his age, that he managed to put those things together and go, oh, knock on my head. You know, because I, sometimes I, I think in our 20s, we don't make those kinds of um, connections to events and to the universe trying to give us messages and, and those kinds of things. And um, that was really great. I, I, one of the things that I've, I've really found amazing about this book is the fact that he, Omari has been blessed with this ability to put pieces together in a way that a lot of young people don't. Um, with life experiences and how he was already very um, um, just interested and intelligent and reading and doing, you know, taking in information and and making choices that um, helped him along the way that a lot of young people wouldn't. Um, it's just been fascinating to me. Um, one of the other things um, he talks about um, that I found when he talks about going into um, when he was incarcerated in the uh, Pierce County jail and just talking to all these men and young men and, 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 and meeting with all these people and, and just being interested in other people. And I think that's what has served him so well is that he's able to meet people where they are. He's able, he has enough street sense not to get into a situation that's going to be harmful to him, but he also knows how to put pieces of information together. And that's a, that's an incredible um, blessing for a person to have that because we don't always get that out of our life lessons in a way that propels us forward um, in a way that he has been able to do in his life. Um, I just, his story is fascinating to me. Just fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I completely understand what you're saying. I feel like there's a lot of moments in 
my own life as a 20 something year old i won't reveal myself to our audience but uh <laughs> and where like things happen and i'm like oh okay and then it happens again but like in a different way you know and it it took so much for me to learn the lesson the hard way instead of just like making the connection the first time so i definitely you know it's <laughs> easier said than done but omari did have an uncanny ability to just like and a lot of it is probably also retrospect, you know, but um, it seemed like he had this ability to, like, know what was going to be best for him and what, like... Um, he was so good at, at finding opportunities. Yeah, yeah. It's Recognizing just like it, it opportunities. Came, it came to him so, like, easily, you know? It Yes. I want to say, too, because, like, that was something that really stood out was that it was like he naturally had these inclinations to go in a path that would benefit him. So he would under like he understood the the different rules of being in in county when then he took that into the different rules for being in jail and, the, and then the rules for being in prison and like how to navigate those systems and how to mm-hmm. navigate them in a way to be forward thinking proactive and a really a a like driven mindset which is just so fascinating because hearing all the hardships of like what he was dealing with in jail never felt like I was reading a like black narrative drama you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not experiencing the like the Shawshank redemption that's not what's happening here it's it's not people like coming back in, repeated crimes, any of that. It's just, here I am. I don't want to be here. want to be somewhere better. Got to do something better. And just like the constant moving. Yeah. His momentum was really like a big thing of this whole book, really. It was like everything instead of him allowing himself to like sit and just feel sorry for himself or use uh, any of his... Um, his trauma as an excuse to be stagnant he used it in in the opposite way as momentum to as like a reason to do better and go even harder and want more for himself and and we continue to see that throughout um, the end of the book as well um so a, a big part of part three uh which was i got through it a lot easier than I I thought I would for what everything that he went through in part three, but it's like we see him deal with uh, grief and it's like the better his life like situation got, the harder his hardships got. Even, you know, like in part two, his the big trauma was him going to prison and he used that as this big like as this big launching point uh, for his career really he's built a career off his experience in the prison system but in part three when he's dealing with grief he even says himself like there is nothing he didn't feel like uh was necessary for that he's um for that part of his journey like he had no reason to experience the grief he said that he should be sharing those moments with his loved ones and in part three, we see him lose all of his closest um, family members. And it's it's just, uh, it was heartbreaking for different reasons. I've said every part has been heartbreaking for one reason, but this one is really heartbreaking because all, all of us on this um, 
on this meeting now have have lost a parent and knows what it's like to go through that um and i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy so just seeing how it was it was great to see him you know like keep pushing himself forward through all of that and you know still be able to like he said he can't fail in their name you know like he his dad and his mom would want to see him do well. So he did even better. We saw his GPA increase through all of that. Um, but it's it just breaks my heart to see how, like, he was an adult orphan and he felt that way. Um, so, yeah, this was tough. Beautiful story. And it's definitely, like, like I appreciate him for sharing uh, this part of his journey with us. Uh, but it was hard for me, for sure. Yeah, I agree. And it it all happened just so suddenly and unexpectedly. But I think another thing that was really interesting that it talks about is just the financial aspects of death and dying and like how every everything just costs. So like you don't have the time and space to grieve and mourn in a in a way that you would best make it possible if you if finances weren't a concern. So just hearing about this this idea about like how we handle a situation around death, what do we do? What do we what do we do now? We have to handle the all the logistics, and we have to be there for our our loved ones and the people that care about us. Um, but also like we have to finish school. All this stuff was happening like right when he was going through a big a lot of like major changes at um, I think it was UW Tacoma, and to read about how he didn't let it stop him but he figured out how to adjust because another thing that can happen to people is it's like oh okay that happened and I'm I'm still on nothing's gonna change either everything's gonna change and I fail and I don't do anything or nothing's gonna change and I'm gonna bottle it all up inside but it seems like he was able to figure it out to like the best of his ability obviously because you don't know how you're going to respond when you start to lose members of your family, but taking that time he needed, working within the systems that he had to work in, but also calling out those systems that were like, oh, okay, you get one infraction, like that kind of mentality that continues to like live in the realm of education of like, oh, well, that shouldn't be affecting your ability to do your work, or this is, you missed this assignment, or you're late for this class, so shame on you, you're not going to get your degree, things like that. He Like, he didn't have to deal with that as harshly as some have yeah most definitely and dealing with his uh his girlfriend and eventually going to prison and doing her time yeah was because i completely forgot about that when i was reading it and then he's like he's been like in court like got a lawyer had his sentencing served his time and she was still waiting on her sentencing and i'm like that is insane and then that she went right to jail like she didn't have to wait like uh whatever how long he spent waiting to for his sentencing like she just went right to jail and um and then he had to be a, a single parent for all that time with his kids and and she was pregnant and i'm like oh my goodness it was a lot happening right there but they got through it and it was it was crazy reading that part and then her getting out and having the baby 2 weeks later yeah but that was crazy 
Also, so many kids. <laughs> so many kids. So many kids. I don't want to spoil any like any more of the book, but Amari, like you'll read up, you'll get to a part where he says, We're not having any more kids. And he has, and there's like a four, they're like four or five deep. And by the end of the book, they're at like nine. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, how are they sleeping, bro? Like what are they, do they have bunk beds or like, what is their house situation like? Like, I've had so many questions that even now, like, aren't answered. I've, I've, we need to, I'll probably do a follow-up interview with Omari because I have questions about, mostly about his family, which is weird because that's the personal part, but. <laughs> I, well, I just remember how many kids came with him when he did his lecture. And I was like, that's a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, and that was what was so funny to like be reading and being like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Be like, okay, I think I saw this kid because he was about this age trying mm-hmm. to like break it down and mm-hmm. use the math. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that's the oldest one. So that was definitely one of the ones we saw. But I think were there, I think there were the three boys we met. And yes. and I don't think we met his his daughters or any of the girls. So. No, I don't think so. No, no, no. I, yeah. I, and I honestly only remember two boys, but there might have been three because I felt like there was, okay, all right. Seemed like there were more than three, but I was like, there's just all these people around him. It's like a gaggle of people around him when he came. So, <laughs> Well, and that can go into the next thing I wanted to say about him talking about having to raise some of those kids while his partner was incarcerated. So, like, when she went in, he had their, it's, was it their two sons and the, the And the, the, the mom, the girlfriend's daughter. Yes. No, but I didn't know if he was raising the three kids or if there were just two. And then that she was giving birth when, after she got out of jail. I don't know. He was raising some kids <laughs> by himself, but he was not by himself because he addresses, like, my girlfriend's mom put money down on a car for me, like helped me mm-hmm. babysitting. My sister helped me with babysitting. So it was just good to see it takes a village. Like it mm-hmm. takes a whole village to raise these kids and to make this possible for him and for everybody's well-being. Yeah, he had a wonderful community um, around him for sure. Like it was it was great to see the same characters from early in the book, earlier in the book, popping up and giving him money and cars and helping him um just get back on his feet after that and all the blessings that he mentioned uh for him receiving after he got out it was insane like they're like them being provided with housing right when they needed housing um and it was just the right time and the right place and the right phone call and he was his whole family was set up and they took uh, really good care of them, said they made sure the kids had a good Christmas and everything um, and still re- continuing to receive um, after that situation, receiving more housing and um, just help from like organizations and individuals. Um, it was uh, really uplifting to um, see like because he was moving himself in such a positive direction that all of this positive energy was following him and um and activating in real life. Well, are there any final thoughts from everybody? 
What are our final thoughts? I mean, please, please go read this book. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a great book. Like there, I mean, you'll, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll, it's, you'll experience all the range of emotions. You'll definitely be angry. And if you're not angry by anything in this book, you probably need to read it again. (laughs) Yeah. A great journey. Mm-hmm. It's really a, te- a really a great story about how the uh, legal system is not set up to be supportive of you at all. It's punitive and ridiculous. And it's like a circus. You have to jump through all these little hoops for for no payoff. So, you know, not for you anyway, for your lawyers and everybody else, but not for you. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And then if you're in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, it's giving you a little bit of a glimpse into one old Seattle slash Tacoma area, but also to like a look into how things are going out in the legal system out here, because I think that people think legal system or they hear like, oh, civil liberties being taken away. And they're like, that's far. That's that only happens in the South. That only happens in this. And you're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Right here. Right. And the whole, you know, cash bail system and how punitive that is and it's really I'm, I'm glad to know that Washington has a bail um, system um, you know a fund now to help people mm-hmm. balance that that uh, inequity in terms of bail but that's basically a way to keep you indentured and enslaved you know it's just you know it's like being a, a, share, a sharecropper well we didn't make any money this year so you're stuck you know I'm I mean, it's the same thing. Oh, you don't have enough money to get out. Oh, well, you have to stay here. Um, so it destroys lives and everything. So I think he really painted a really good picture of that and and how the games get played between the guards and the prisoners. And I thought it was very uh, amazing that that one guard gave him a, a, a heads up mm-hmm. that, you know, he was going to get in trouble with the swap that he was trying to do. Um, which I was very surprised in because this guy wasn't known for being a nice guy. So you never know when all of, when these um, blessings are going to come and from whence they will come. You know, they just happen sometimes and you have to be smart enough to go, oh, yeah, somebody's trying to tell me something. I better listen, you know. So, and he certainly was smart enough to catch those messages, which is amazing, you know, amazing. I was thinking, you know, for him being, what, 21, 20, that he was able to, you know, pick up on the messages that were being given to him because most of us aren't that rational at that age. (laughs) (laughs) We're just doing whatever. (laughs) But, yeah. And I guess the last thing for me, for Omari, um, and this book in general is just to, you know, you never know what people are capable of. Like this man is a, a felon felon, like, like real, like not currently, because I'm sure his record might have been expunged or he's not doing that anymore. But, you know, he is a felon and we can't just look at someone and dismiss them because of, you know, mistakes they've made and, um, you know, what their current situation might be because, like he said some statistics if you get a master's degree or do any kind of post-secondary education after um your incarceration that greatly reduces the chance that you will be 
um, a repeat offender. Repeat. So mm-hmm. you just never know like what, um, like how we can help people and how um, just a helping hand can, how far a helping hand can take someone um, and what people are capable of. Um, so that's that. Go check out this book and go listen to um, our interview with Omari. Uh, so you can just support all the great work that he's doing to fight the good fight. Yeah. And just one more thing is that, you know, Omar spoke a lot about the different resources that were available to him and that like he was able to take part in. So I just also will have a link in our show notes that will have the Seattle Public Library's uh, resource for formerly incarcerated people. And it has, they have, the library itself has different like, job resources, computer classes, education programs. But then on this website, they also have a list of just different organizations from anywhere from like housing, food, um, toys, books for kids, just anything um, and other areas and organizations that are hiring as well. So it's a good, good opportunity to like check it out for yourself if you were formerly incarcerated or for someone that you know who might need some, some additional help. Um, and with that thank you all so much for listening we're looking forward to chatting more with you all next month but until then share this episode with your friends and let's keep this conversation about great stories going take care seattle and sweet dreams seattle this program is supported in part by a grant from the washington state arts commission and the national endowment of the arts We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206 888-6477. Thank you everyone for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.